Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 348, Pass-Fail versus Open-Ended Play. Presented by Joan Moriarty, Darren Watts, and Beth Rimmels. Hello and welcome everyone to this Metatopia panel on the distinction and contrast between pass-fail play and open-ended play. I'm going to be your moderator for this discussion. First of all, I just really very quickly need to define the terms here in case you're not familiar with them because I uh, sort of kind of made them up. In pass-fail play, this is how we're going to define it. In pass-fail play, the players are attempting to achieve victory and avoid loss according to the rules. In open-ended play, victory and loss are matters of perspective and not covered by game rules. And for the most part, this ends up being a distinction between role-playing games and other kinds of games, but there are always exceptions to those. We can get into those in a little bit. But before we actually get into it, let's introduce uh, everyone in the in the panel discussion today. Um, Beth, would you like to start? Tell us uh, who you are, what you do, how we can find you, and where you stand on the issue of pass-fail play versus open-ended play. So my name is Beth Brimmels. I've been a game designer and a freelancer in the game industry for longer than I want to admit. Uh, my day job is I'm a marketing professional. I also review games for N-World. And you can find me on Twitter at Beth Rimmels, R-I-M-M-E-L-S, or uh, my gaming account is at Awesome, the number eight, followed by the letter S, RPG, so Awesome 8's RPG. Um, When it comes to pass-fail versus open-ended games, both have their value and both have their, um, their, their place in game design, whether you're talking board game design or RPG design. I don't feel like one is inherently better than the other. Um, and in fact, one of, one of my passions I was mentioning uh, earlier to Joe and Darren is um, growing the base of gamers and growing the base, especially of RPG players. And so sometimes in doing that, meeting them where they are and taking advantage of these two different play styles can help facilitate that. Great. Okay, Darren. Uh, my name is Darren Watts. I'm a game designer and writer uh, full time. Um, I also run the panel and seminar track here at Metatopia, so uh, you know, happy to stick myself onto panels that sounded interesting to me to be a part of the discussion for. Um, I am both a mostly known as an RPG designer, but actually my most uh, my my biggest recent product, my biggest recent game, um, is a card game based on uh, We Raid Dogs, the Twitter account. Um, and so I do have some experience kind of on both sides of this. And I guess as far as the question, I think. Uh, it is mostly a question of style. I don't think at the absolute kind of like core elements that this is actually a dichotomy at all. Um, and I believe that uh, story games in their own way or, you know, like uh, uh, games, open-ended games are frequently just redefining what passing and failing means. Mm. So I kind of disagree that it's a it's a fundamental split so much as it's a stylistic split. And I think that that's something we can talk about as we go along. Excellent. Um, my name is Joan Moriarty. I've been a designer, author, art director, publisher, and a lifelong player of games of nearly all kinds. Spent the last decade working at Snakes and Lattes Board Game Cafe here in Toronto, helping guests to choose, learn, and play games of many different kinds. I've also been a professional role-playing GM for a couple of years, focusing mainly on first-time role players. 
And I've just recently started a YouTube channel designed to help bring more people into the hobby and have more fun playing games. You can find it by searching for Joan the Games Mistress on YouTube. Though they will try to tell you that Games Mistress is two words. Do not believe YouTube's lies. <laughs> Games Mistress is one word. They probably hasn't been used that much in Victorian era, so it's fine. Um, my therapist has forbidden me to interact with anybody on Twitter or Facebook, but uh, you can message me on Twitter at jgamesmistress. And, um, all right, so let's get started. Um, who would like to begin talking about what's good about open-ended play, what it is that makes it special and makes it something that is inviting and good for new players? Aaron, do you want to dive in? Uh, if you want, sure. Um, what's good about it? Wow, it's a, it's a, it's a unique art form. It is a, um, it's an experience that you can't really get uh, doing pretty much anything else. The entire concept of uh, of, of collaborative storytelling um, in a kind of like an uh, in a, an ephemeral uh, uh, you know circumstance, um, you know, it dates back. It, it's it's connected to our love of theater, but it basically uh, kind of like redefines a lot of like the the uh, fundamental concepts of theater because the audience is also the you know contributors at the same time right like I mean it's a it's a, uh, unless you're talking about something like a, you know actual play um, which I think frequently deforms role playing by actually like making it a performance in front of an art in, in front of an audience yeah. that's not actually participating at the same time I think the, uh, the 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 full participation of everybody who is involved in the story is kind of like a key component that uh, that that I, I miss when I'm seeing it uh, done in other places, but I think it is a you know it, it's an experience when it, when it is successful and even when it is occasionally less than successful, it is still um, something that you it, it scratches an itch that you can't get at any other way. Beth, you've been working to bring more people into the world of games and play, particularly in the world of RPGs. So, what are some things about play that doesn't have to concern itself with victory and loss that you find are particularly useful for that purpose? An interesting um, way to look at, see, I look at from past, when I'm trying to introduce somebody who has never touched a role-playing game, there's nothing about it. I usually explain an RPG as we're playing pretend at the table because everybody has done that at some point in their lives. You know, when you were a little kid, you played pretend for something. Um, so that's something they grab a hold of. And then basically explain that an RPG just simply establishes some kind of guidelines uh, to make sure that it's fair. Because it's going to break down very quickly if you're, if you're playing pretend and say, I shoot you. And I say, I refuse to fall down. You know, that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, so that's kind of where I start with explaining to people if they know absolutely nothing, if they know a little bit of something about role-playing games, um, I approach it from a different angle, but if they know absolutely nothing, um, I'm starting from that. We're just playing pretend. And that is the ultimate when we were little kids, open-ended game, you know, game design. Well, not so much design to it, but it's an open-ended situation. Um, so I'm trying to get them to tap into that memory, that history. And then just giving them a little bit of a dynamic as to where to go. Now, um, the the game I've I've been designing does put more of a framework on it. And superficially, it could be argued it does have pass fail conditions for individual things. Um, but it's also designed with a campaign approach, which I tend to look at campaigns as 
you know, yes, you may pass or fail in a task or in a given aspect of the plot, but in the big scheme of things, it's about, you know, the the grandeur of the plot and the open-endedness of the plot. It's not about, did you just win that battle? It's about were you having fun and were you satisfied? I think does that make that, sense for your question? I, I think it very much does, and it speaks to what Darren was saying about uh, how the distinctions between the two may not be as clear-cut as we make it out to be, because even in an open-ended game, there will still be successes and there will still be failures when it comes to various different things that happen. Uh, it's only the overall structure of it, the uh, the closure of it, the conclusion, the fact that this is going to end either in success or failure, which really distinguishes the two types. And uh, I contend that that can actually have a very profound effect on players' experience of it throughout, and not just at the ending, because the question that this is leading up to is rarely far from people's minds. Um, to me, the most remarkable and most powerful thing about open-ended play is uh, what it offers that... Uh, that pass-fail play doesn't to the same degree is agency and control over the nature of your experience. The fact mm -hmm. that the question of whether you have done well or done poorly is entirely down to you. Um, and this isn't something that's necessarily exclusive to RPGs either. There are board games we're starting to see now again these days in which uh, victory and defeat are not clearly defined by the rules, but something that the players sort of have to decide uh, on after it's over whether or not there's something that happened. And similarly, RPGs have in the past had um, scenarios in them that are very much pass-fail, like the 1991's uh, Amber Diceless by uh, Eric Lujic. There was a throne war scenario that started at the very beginning, and it's like, okay, you have to kill the rest of your siblings and take the throne. If you do it, you win. If you don't, you lose. Mm -hmm. And that was and very, very daring for 1991. Sure, absolutely. And and I would argue that one of the challenges um, with getting people, you know, new into RPGs and everything else, and also helping to encourage people to become new GMs, is yeah. uh, gain them past the mindset of that it's win-lose, and especially that the GM wins if they kill the players. Because <laughs> that to me is... I've run in, not so much in my own personal gameplay, but the horror stories out there. Well, I was going to say, to... hopefully, generally, generationally, that's a thing that like people have got are are getting over. Um, I think it is a, a very common, um, you know, piece of piece of baggage basically for uh, gamers who you know whose whose initial experiences dated back into the say the seventies and eighties. Um, definitely, like carry that. Exactly right. That that kind of you know out of um, style these days. Right. Exactly. So I think fewer but, and fewer people are kind of like being you know uh, subjected to uh, you know like the whims of an angry GM kind of thing, and the, the 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 idea that it's the GM's job to you know to to oppose the players as mm. opposed to uh, you know presenting them with challenges. So it is mostly going the way of the dinosaur, but um D, D recently released a hardcover adventure called the wild beyond the Witchlight, which is set in the fey wild the fairy realms of D, D, and they expressly designed it that you can go through the entire adventure without any combat mm -hmm. and it was the first time that they did that and now now if you want to dive in and of course just try and slaughter everything and you know in your face you can't um, but it was designed that combat was absolutely unnecessary to achieve the final goals. And a lot of people are embracing it, but there's still the howls. And even from some younger people are like, what do you mean? There's no combat. Arr, it's not a game then. Can we and blame video games for that? 
Can we blame right. video games for the fact that we're expected to have to defeat enemies and get XPs and treasure and level up? Is it now the problem of the Zelda games and Mass Effect series rather than D&D that is the culprit behind this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who he blames. Even, even, once again, even without combat, though, there are still uh, potential pass-fail situations in, in any game, right? Like, did I successfully climb over that wall? Did I sneak past the guard or whatever, right? Like, those are still in and of themselves occasionally uh, set up to be uh, pass fail mini games basically within the larger structure of the game. So I think the you know teasing out uh, all of the uh, uh, appearances of pass fail as a as a as a setup even within the storiest of story games is still a thing that is uh, you know uh, uh, a, a fraught discussion, right? Like it, 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 can these things actually be separated from each other um, and still? In, you know, still still require the use of game at all, of the term game at all. So. Fair enough. Well, oh, I was going to say, and then you have the games that are kind of uh, a hybrid to it, um, such as Sentinels or Portex or things like that, where the pass-fail conditions are a bit blurry because maybe you sort of succeed, succeeded on what you were trying to do, but it wasn't a full success, so there's a drawback. Or on the flip side, you kind of failed, but you're going to get a benefit from it. And so that kind of blurs the line between pass-fail and, you know, adds more of an open-ended story element to it that I really enjoy because it's not quite so black and white. All right. Let's talk about the other side of that uh, of that mm-hmm. coin for a little while now. Let's talk about the benefits of pass-fail play and, um, and what you get from that. In my mind... Um, the greatest advantage of pass-fail play is its clarity. It provides clear goals, clear stakes, clear rules, clear choices for players who need to know where they stand and can't bear to feel lost at sea without a sense of what they're supposed to be doing or where they're supposed to be going. Um, this can be a life preserver. Um, I've had, generally speaking, the biggest obstacle that I've had to contend with with new players in open-ended games is what am I supposed to do? This, 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 this sense of panic as they're, it's as though they have to make a public speech or, uh, or improvise something in front of a crowd, which is kind of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the clarity of being able to say, okay, so you've got five cards in your hand, you choose one, which matches the color or the number on this one, and you put it on top. Um, that, that, that clarity um, and the sense that there is going to be a definite conclusion where you've either won or you've lost can provide a great deal of comfort. Uh, to players who are feeling a bit uncomfortable in this space who are new to games or haven't played since they were little and didn't know to be afraid of failing. Um, (laughs) I think that there's a a sort of an evil alchemy that happens as we grow up through our social interactions and our schooling and so on, which tells us that it's not okay to mess up. And, um, and, And providing that clear structure where if you lose, well, it's fine, it's just a game. Um, right. can be easier to contend with than a situation where you have to be a person in an imaginary world that you're not necessarily all that familiar with, or you have to just decide for yourself what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's success and failure. And that can be a lot of responsibility. And sometimes we want to be irresponsible when we're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, can either of you speak to there's, some of these? Well, I think there's, there's a competitive 
uh, uh, you know, like portion of this that is kind of the primary source of entertainment for that kind of game, right? Like there is a, and I don't, I, I think it's simplistic to just say, oh, this is just me proving that I'm better than you or something, right? To like have some, you know, kind of like uh, uh, people like that desire. shouldn't play pass-fail games, because, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Or I, I don't want to play with them anyway when they're doing it. But I've uh, Beth has heard me say this before. Um, I play poker a great deal. Um, and, uh, I don't like playing poker with amateurs for cheap or no money because they don't take it seriously. Right. Mm. Because the, uh, the, 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 the potential, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, negative hit to you from failing goes away, which deforms the game. It causes people to behave ridiculously, to make to to play poorly because their the the outcomes of the decisions that they make have carry no weight, carry have no circumstance, right? Um, so for most people, I much prefer to play for an amount of money that makes them take it seriously. For gamers, for the most part, for my my gaming society of friends, many of my friends, if you tell them paper clips are worth something for the duration of this game, they'll kill and die to get to paper clips, right? Like, I mean, that's the whole point of the game, right? So I will always play poker for M&Ms or whatever with gamers, as long as they kind of like have that sense of, you know, for the for, for this period, this decision matters, right? And like what I'm trying to do matters uh, on a level that is, I think, difficult for people who don't have a gaming background to kind of understand or get their heads around. The necessary playful state you have to get into for a sort of game where you, um, I define playfulness as trying sincerely to succeed while at the same time being comfortable with the possibility that you might fail. Sure, uh, yes. Need that, those are the two necessary conditions to have fun playing any game. But the path to getting there seems to vary based on the kind of game you're playing. And in, in, in a poker game, um, the stakes need to be appropriate for that player exactly. to get to a place where they are going to make a sincere attempt to succeed. Right. Um, and Getting somebody to try playing Lady Blackbird for the first time, by contrast, may require a different process to get them into that place because of what is or is not at stake, and right. uh, because how it will or will not end with victory to make, or to make them players. feel like their decisions carry some weight one way or the yeah. other, right? Exactly. Well, regardless of whether it comes at the end to a you know to a pass fail uh, conclusion, the process of making uh, uh, weighty decisions. Uh, one way or the other, I think is in fact intrinsic to games as opposed to whether or not there is a win-loss condition, yeah, right? Like I think part of the definition of game is the fact that I am I am uh, uh, engaged in an activity uh, that has structure, that has like rules to it, and the decisions that I make will in fact uh, outcome will, will affect the outcome, right? It's as long as I'm doing that, then I'm playing a game, right? Yeah, it's Next a social contract. Game? What's that? Is Snakes and Ladders a game? Sorry. I'm yeah, absolutely. You. Yes, it could be. No, absolutely. It could be as long as the the people who are playing who care about it. Absolutely. Hmm. Even right. I mean, yes, you may have to. You know, there there is always that point. You know, like that you reach uh, uh, at a certain age when you realize that uh, your decisions don't actually matter. Um, that you know, like the, the 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 cards basically will determine everything that happens in it. But up until you reach that point, um, then you are still invested in everything that 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 happens to you. So. Do you have any particular advantages that you've found in introducing new people to games that um, that tend to occur with pass-fail play? Any advantages you can leverage in that style? It depends upon a little bit of their background. So if they're used to, I hate using the word conventional games, 
but the games that they're going to run into or their their definition of games they're going to run into in the arrow world as opposed to the wide plethora that we actually have in the game industry um i think they call them walmart games yeah 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 and, and i even feel kind of bad about calling it that because it's some kind of classist it's, it is yeah, but okay, right. yeah um but you know they're society very much tells people that if there's a game there is a clear winner mm. and there's a clear loser that's mm-hmm. what unfortunately our current society at large tends to say I agree. Um, so those people do have a tendency to do a little better with pass fail and you have to kind of um coax them over or maybe not even coax them but open their eyes to a different way of playing mm-hmm. um so that is the one good thing which is they're kind of used to that you know they're used to Oh, my baseball team won or lost, you know, um, the concept of that there's a game where, you know, it's it's more fuzzy. It's not quite as clear cut and it is open ended or like with the fiasco where you can both, you know, win and lose, you know, at the same time. <laughs> the goal is to lose. Right. Yeah. yeah or play, the yeah, goal exactly, is to lose spectacularly. Two. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I win by having that's, the most outrageous failures. That's kind um, of the core of the argument that I was making at the beginning for this, right? Um, mm-hmm. Even Fiasco has a win, a winning condition, and the winning condition is an entertaining disaster of a story, yep. right? And so if we as a group worked together and told an entertaining disaster of a story, then we won, right? Like mm-hmm. by any sense, regardless of whether there was any other kind of like movements toward a winning condition or something that could be like defined as a victory. The victory was the evening that we spent and the hilarious stories that it will generate from things like going on. Those are the rewards. And the winning state is, was this fun? Was this a good story? Right. right? Um, you know, to, and I think that's, um, we were talking earlier. At the, I mentioned that this is an argument that, like you know, was uh, was debated ferociously at the on the forge mm. um, about whether or not story games as a group uh, suffered anything from using the word games because it lent the idea to to people that there was in fact uh, you know like uh, uh, additional connotations to the term beyond the idea of like oh, all we are doing is getting together and telling a story. Right, it created right. the expectation of an experience more like... Exactly, right. But that's the, the the philological answer to that was, well, but that is in fact what you're doing, right? Like if you successfully get to a story, then you have in fact succeeded. But then that led to the question of like, well, then did we lose if like the story didn't come out so well, right? Like if, we, if, if people at the table weren't terribly happy with it, did they lose? That's kind of like a tough thing to... Uh, uh, once again, to define, right? Like it's, uh, you know, and and did, does that matter? Is anybody keeping track or are we just going to try to do better next time? You know, sort of thing. So I feel like there's a stigma attached to the idea of losing that does a great disservice to pass fail games in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yes. Um, in a story game, and again, an open-ended game, the expectation is that, yeah, if we enjoyed the story, it was fun. If we had a good time, it was fun. But I think somehow people have a more difficult time applying that same principle to pass-fail games. And they will see themselves as failures, personally, if they weren't able to win at, I don't know, Quantum or something. Because they they, they failed. And and that that can be something that can be very destructive to people's enjoyment of games. And what you were saying earlier, I think, about common perceptions, public perceptions of what games are, you take a look at the games that most commonly get appear in popular media that that get articles in newspapers. They come in three categories: um, high stakes poker, professional sports, 
mm-hmm. and reality TV shows. And in all three of those, those are all pass-fail games. And in all three of them, the penalty for losing is not just, oh, well, I lost, but it was still fun. Um, if you play badly in professional poker, you can lose your role. If you play mm-hmm. badly in a professional baseball game, you can lose your job. If you play badly in a reality TV show, you can be the laughing stock of the internet. Sure. Um, uh, again, I would say that the, the, certainly for the la- the latter two of those uh, uh, those examples, um, there's some kind of like question about uh, who exactly is playing, right? Mm. At that point, right? Like if you're talking about a, pers- a professional sports team, sure, the games themselves have winners and losers. Right, but the teams are owned by uh, you know like wealthy uh, business people um, who are going to win one way or the other as long as their team makes money, right? Like whether or not the Red Sox uh, win the uh, World Series or not is not entirely relevant to the owner of the Red Sox, right? Like the owner of the Red Sox is concerned about how many tickets he's selling to the park, right? So I mean, that's absolutely true. Uh, I would argue that that's probably not how most sports fans see things, though. They're going to root for their home team, they're going to root for their favorites, and they're going to see the stakes of those games as being very, very serious. And the players, too, are going to see the stakes of those games as being so serious that they cannot afford to lose. Losing is death. Absolutely correct. And and I'm I'm, I'm saying, like, I I, I want us to look at it, uh, you know, like, at a kind of like a deeper question for that because you know the 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 um the decisions that are made by the ownership uh that are based on whether or not they are winning or losing the play the game that they're playing mm. right which is a game that is basically being measured in dollars not in you know points right uh are going to affect the uh the the outcomes of the games that are based on points right like i mean like the the, the quality of the team that you're going to produce the quality of the park that you're playing in etc cetera, etc cetera. uh all of these decisions are impacted by the outside game that is you know kind of like uh, uh not happening but it's entirely possible for all of those guys to win right like all 30 owners of major league baseball teams are all winning right now because baseball is insanely profitable and the actual outcomes of the games that happen, the things that the fans and the the the, the audience are looking at, um, are being directly impacted by the fact that there is a thirty ga- a thirty person team, uh, a thirty person game that is happening that has right now thirty winners. Right, <laughs> it's basically like playing a co op game for them. Right, like so. In a sense, yes. It's in a lot of ways, though. I find that uh, it doesn't actually seem like all that much fun, particularly if you lose. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 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 so serious and so and the stakes are so high that it seems hard to imagine why anybody who wasn't approaching it from a purely professional standpoint, where they're 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 trying to make a living, not necessarily mm-hmm. have a good time, would engage in that, would play that. Whereas right. in order for the kinds of games that we're talking about here to be fun, people have to come to it expecting to enjoy them. Right. And um, I, say, I I think an aspect of it is. And I almost hate using the word ego because it's so kind of fraught mm. with, uh, with um, you know, uh, psychological baggage. But I think it depends upon what um, your ego attaches to for what gives it validation and what um, it feels rewarding. Because I have known, I've been related to, um, some people who get so mad when their professional sports team loses. You cannot talk to them for days. Mm-hmm. That they are that invested or that, oh my God, my team did not win that game. It wasn't even like a playoff game or anything like that. Um, but somehow they attach their identity 
to that winning or losing state, over which, by the way, in this case, they have zero control because they're not a player. It's just the team they root for. Um, whereas I think a different type of player um, is more about the process. And so they don't care if it's win, lose, whatever, so long as the process is fun. And I think most people fall in a spectrum of these you know, attitudes, mm -hmm. um, but they're very invested in the win, lose. I think that's an aspect of it, of that, you know, it's, it's propping up their identity when they win. Right. When you're dealing with a new player who is very, very, um, what's the word I'm very, very loss avoidance. Uh, very, very concerned with the possibility of not losing, not being seen to lose. Um, what sort of approach do you think is more useful for helping them to enjoy games and play? A pass-fail approach or an open-ended approach, generally speaking? Or can you make generalizations about this? I think it may depend upon the person. I don't know. What do you do yeah. think? I think, um, well, specifically for people, I think, who are loss-avoidant for it, um, they probably don't have a great deal of experience with open-ended games, right? Mm. Like it's, I, th I think loss avoidance uh, is a, is a, um, a tactic or, or, you know, like is, is a thing that is a, a, a trait, I guess, that is shared by people with less experience with games at all, right? Like if you've, if, you know, if you've sat down and played, you know, like a week's worth of board games at a convention, right? Well, it's like, okay, well, I won five times and I lost 10 times or whatever kind of thing. You know, like the the fact that, you know, like all of that experience together added up to a fun weekend, right? Mm -hmm. Like each individual loss becomes much less important. You're just like, well, damn, I'm going to have to, you know, like you, you can get over them quickly because there's another game coming up in 20 minutes, right? Like you don't have to live with that loss and, uh, you know, have that like you know seep into your personal self-image because we got to go play another one right now, you know, kind of thing. So, I think there is a level at which you can kind of almost, um, the, what's the the term for somebody the, the uh, um, exposure therapy, right? Yeah, exposure no, therapy. say like exposure therapy to your phobia, right? Kind of thing of like if you if you can kind of like manage somebody's uh, interactions with their losses. Um, and kind of like help them see that like no individual loss is that important and no frankly neither is no individual win is that important either right that is something that you can help somebody get over and i'm not sure that necessarily story games in that case or that that open-ended games are necessarily going to uh assist they're not going to improve that situation they may not make it worse right like if they sit down and just play a bunch of open-ended games and never feel the experience of losing well then they've avoided the thing that bugs them and congratulations good for you but that thing is still going to bug them every time that they do encounter a win-loss situation whereas which is actually going to playing, happen in their which open-ended games in your life right like exactly in many things whereas i think if you can kind of like manage uh their interaction with pass-fail games i think that's probably the only reliable way that I'm aware of to kind of get over that. And I'm saying this obviously in full, you know, I, I am not a psychiatrist. Please do not, uh, you know, uh, attribute any weight to what I'm saying beyond just experience of dealing with new players. So. so do either of you think that maybe getting them into cooperative games may also be a bridge to help gain them? Exactly. Over? Right. Yeah. That's the, I was going to bring that up as kind of like the next uh, topic. If you like you can get them into, if you're, if you're introducing them to games, if you, especially if you are introducing them to, uh, to board games or something like that, where they have not been exposed to anything more sophisticated than, you know, Monopoly and sorry, and Monopoly probably played wrong in the first place. Um, but you can instead in introduce them to something like Pandemic, where it's okay, the entire table is basically playing against yeah. the game, 
right? right? Then, uh, you know, then, then any win or loss is shared at the mm-hmm. table, right? And so like, if we have that experience as a group, um, it may help them overcome their individual problem with a loss because, well, you know, like all six of us lost, that's, but the, the game won, the board won, you know, kind of thing. That, that uh, that's, also backfire on you sometimes. I, just, it probably can. If, if you get somebody who really needs to win playing a cooperative game, uh, that is prime territory for the so-called alpha player problem or quarterbacking. Yeah. <laughs> you ruin sure. the experience for everybody. If somebody mm-hmm. really, really needs to win and is invested in that and feels that they have that, that their, their identity as a person has to do with not letting the stupid game beat them, then <laughs> right. there's a good chance that they may end up telling the other players what to do and getting very upset when they don't. Right. Uh, my approach, rather than co-op games, would be to go with games that have a mix of hidden and open information. So it's not possible to always make all the correct decisions because you don't have access to all the information that you need to do it. In particular, um, there's a certain there's a principle I call Schrodinger's mad skills um, that um, is basically a player's capacity to uh, to own their successes and say, yes, that's because of something that I did, and disown their failures and say, well, that was just luck. <laughs> uh, there are certain kinds of games that have a mix of skill and luck, hidden and open information, that makes it easy for players to do that. To sure. basically deny responsibility for the stuff that went wrong, saying, well, that was just bad luck, but still be able to take credit for the stuff that they did right, for the good decisions that they made. And that is, to my mind, uh, the best way of doing this. I did a video recently about Incan Gold and how that game makes it so, so easy to just take credit for everything that you do well and absolve yourself of everything that you did poorly while providing uh, a thing that is a substantial game, but too substantial. Sure. But- that's that's the sort of thing I that think I would that, bring that's, up. To. That's probably yeah no I think that's probably a tremendously healthy way to do it. Once again, depending on the circumstances, that is a notorious way for uh, poker players to lose a lot of money, <laughs> right? Is to like <laughs> except, to assume that like all of their victories came from their skills and all of their losses came from bad luck or whatever is uh, you know precisely the way to take a large amount of money and turn it into a small amount of money at a poker table. So. Well, uh, imagine because once again, those are, those are those right, yeah. are right. Those are that. That's not necessarily the same circumstance as somebody who is actually just trying to get into a healthier relationship with games as a concept. So that's a, as opposed yeah. to a fish showing up at a high stakes game. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So, right. Um, so we've we've covered a lot of really interesting things. Um, let's see what others? All right. One of the problems that I've run into sometimes with introducing people who are used to playing video games um, or you know, or pass-fail games to the world of role-playing is that sense of being lost at sea. Um, Bethany mentioned earlier about how the earliest games we play, playing house, playing cops and robbers, uh, are open-ended in nature. And as little kids, I mean, this is my way of seeing it, we didn't know to be afraid. Mm-hmm. We had not yet been taught to fear the punishment that comes when we make a mistake. Um, I recently had the experience of, interesting, of introducing somebody who just said, I can't do role-playing games. And uh, the game that we played was Lady Blackbird, and she did have a very good time with it. And I found that the tactic that worked most for that was whenever she started to kind of uh, do that. You know, you've seen that look, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I would offer her two or three options things that her character might do. And um, I also mentioned to her at the very start and had to write on a piece of paper, um, it is always okay to ask, what does my character know about this situation? Mm -hmm. Those are the two tools that I used to help her to feel more comfortable um, 
outside her comfort zone in an open-ended place state. Uh, mm-hmm. They did work pretty well, uh, but we can always use more tools. Um, what's, what, what sort of approaches have you been able to take with people who kind of feel adrift, feel in need of direction in a pastel situation to help them get comfortable and enjoy themselves? If it's a role-playing game as opposed to a board game. I don't think I did of any kind. What I've tended to do is if I can, because uh, actually I, I had this um, uh, experience I prior, um, uh, actually it wasn't in Metatopia, it was a different double exposure convention, uh, but with somebody who never played a role-playing game before. Never, ever, ever did have any concept of it, never even heard of D&D, you know, um, but was willing to try. And I was able to relay it to movies to basically say, um, hey, so this game is set in this genre. Have you ever seen? Um, it was kind of amusing because I had to go pretty far down the genre list before I found one of those that had been seen as well. Um, but being able to relay it to that and then to be able to extrapolate out and say, OK, so in this scenario, you know, you're a spy like James Bond, but you don't do it all. You have a team that's your that's the people you're playing with. So one of you can, it'll be the action guy and one of you will be the good talker and one of you will be this. And that helped to, because what you're describing with the person with Lady Blackbird, it sounds like they had a bit of overwhelmed situation. Um, so again, kind of related to something that they've the seen. Spot, improvising on the spot. That was the right. issue. Yeah. Was genre conventions. Uh, yeah. Very and, much not knowing what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you can uh, tie it to something they're familiar with in pop culture, and mm-hmm. scale it down, not really to take away options, but to take away the overwhelm of options. Mm. I find right. that the then paralysis the analysis of I did I I could do anything, and therefore I don't know what to do at all. Right? Yeah. Exactly, and that was where I, my that was actually uh, considered that game a huge win for me because I took this person who had no clue what a role playing game was, and within about forty five minutes of play, they stopped responding with. Well, I think my character would and start responding with, I'm going to. And you could right, tell right. that they had gotten hooked into all role-playing games. Right. That's, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the, that's the joy of genre um, within a, a fictional game in the first place, right? The, the extent to which you can, uh, you know, kind of like tie it to a shared experience, tie it to a familiar experience um, where they, even if they don't know that they know this consciously, subconsciously, they know what the rules are. Right, they know how a detective is supposed to behave in a you know like noir game. They know how uh, a crewman on the Enterprise is supposed to you know like interact with other crewmen on the Enterprise or the weird aliens that they meet. Right, like mm-hmm. it's a you know uh, the the it, in in many ways it's the whole point of having a genre. Um, the problem then comes when you hit something that is uh, that that the genre is not necessarily as immediately obvious or is not something that's immediately familiar. Lady Blackbird is uh, a wonderful, wonderful game, um, but it does uh, it it has a very kind of like a, a unique and peculiar point of view. Uh, <laughs> you know, like as a genre story, there's a there are a great many people who have never encountered a story quite like it. It just in their you know background reading or anything, right? So um, teaching them the rules of that, right? Like of the of, of how the universe is going to work, sometimes becomes a more complicated thing. And maybe you want to start them with something if they're brand new. Um, and you and you see this problem. Lady Blackbird is a great game to introduce uh, the right people to, but if it's somebody who is having a, uh, a lot of trouble, kind of like grasping the idea of like you know 
creating and inhabiting a character, it might be easier to do it within a genre that you know they're comfortable with. And so, like you said, taking your person through and saying, okay, what, uh, you know, what's your favorite kind of movie? What's your favorite kind of TV show? What's your favorite kind of book to read? And finding them a game that's close to that um, might be the the easiest, anyway, the path of least resistance to getting them uh, comfortable with the problem. And then you can kind of show them, uh, you know, the more beautifully daffy uh, kinds of things like, like uh, Lady Blackbird. The, uh, one of the things that I found useful as well is bringing in and leveraging real-world knowledge within a game. Um, mm-hmm. Any game, any open-ended game that you set in the real world, the contemporary world of today, immediately gives everybody a leg up on it. Sure. Because they know stuff about the real world. Uh, <laughs> a trick that I used in creating the introductory B&D module that I used um, at Stormcrow was that I made all of the player characters siblings. And the way that you choose your character is by, okay, here's the first child. Uh, they have always had to be the responsible one, and they maybe feel a little bit resentful about that. Here's the second child, who always feels like they have something to prove about being good enough. Here are the twins. Uh, right. Here's the baby who's the most emotionally available. The fact that even the only children in the group know what family dynamics sure. are immediately gave them a hook that they could use. Yep. Uh, and yes, it's open-ended and stuff, but they know how siblings are together. They know how this works, and that enabled them to use each other as a sort of a touchdown, as a for, for grappling with this strange fantasy world that, I mean, they've never heard of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, but they understand about families. Right. And so that became that became something they were able to use. Um, but even when things are very open ended, if the situation is familiar, then that leaves people a lot less adrift and more like. In, in a more familiar situation, it is unfamiliarity, I think, that is the major uh, stumbling block for open-ended play. All right, well, we've um, we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, we could put it to some uh, questions. I was going to say, if you, if you like, we could see what's in the chat here. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Mickey, can you hear us? We're, we're listening to Mickey on the other end, our wonderful technical director. And... Um, we're going to see if we can uh, find some questions from the chat about this. Earlier on. Sorry, we can, we can hear what's going on there, but uh, our audience can't. We find general social states like character role-playing goals motivate well in open-ended play. Could you repeat the question again? Sorry. Could you repeat the question for me, please, Mickey? Define general social states like character role-playing motivate well in open-ended play. Right, so being handed a character type or something, being handed and, 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 and a crafted, goal, this, right, and, and a goal of the character for your right. particular character to accomplish, which I guess makes it more of a pass-fail type of circumstance. Because, I mean, for example, in the um, in the Aliens um, RPG, um, often it's it, it's made into a sort of a social deduction game where each player has possibly a secret identity and a secret motivation which mm-hmm. they have to accomplish in order to win. And that RPG does very much have a pass-fail sort of feel to it. Sure. Um, do you find that in, in your? I've never actually run that game. Um, for those of you who've had experience or heard stories about it running, do you find that the that introducing those elements of specific player goals uh, makes it um, it provi- provides useful direction in that open-ended 
Aiden brings in some of the advantages of pass fail play, or is it an unhappy marriage? I think having those having those goals assigned to a character, having those uh, um, you know kind of like additional winning conditions, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the this is going to work out best for you if your character can like arrange this sort of you know shenanigans behind the scene or something. Um, I think it does work when it matches the genre of the game. Right, I think that that that's a genre feature. Not all genres have it. Not all genres need it or want it or find it uh, productive, right? But like a game in which uh, we're doing an espionage game, where it's kind of like expected that half of the group are going to be, you know, double agents who are secretly doing something else, you know, uh, uh, behind. Like we'd we'd be disappointed not to have that, right? right? And so it'd be, it'd be less satisfying. Yeah, it'd be a less satisfying. Exactly. If I'm doing a Game of Thrones type game or something and our families are not all you know trying to betray each other or something it wouldn't feel right right so there that is certainly a way to kind of uh enhance and underline genre um we were joking uh, earlier when we were talking about setting up this panel that like you know there, that there are many rpgs honestly that like the mechanic is in fact fail fail <laughs> right there is no there is no quality outcome fiasco would be one of them uh mm-hmm. any of the any of the call of cthulhu games or trail of cthulhu or something right like where the goal is to uh you know to 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 live heroically and to sacrifice yourself in the name of like preserving humanity but knowing that in the end there is no you know chance that that nobody is going to succeed nobody's getting out of here alive is key to that genre so i don't think that that is a, a piece of advice that that uh, it works across genres, but I think it works spectacularly well in the genres that it's fit for. I can tell you one experience that I've had, or at least uh, one of the other games that I tend to run a lot at Stonecrow is this piece of nonsense. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I, I offer it as an option. We're going to party like it's 1979. Right. Um, this is the meat grinder. This is the old school D&D experience where you're expected to get killed several times. This module has a mortality rate when I run it of about 115%. Exactly And I right. tell yeah. that to players up front before they decide that they want to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is something where sometimes the group will PPK themselves. Exactly, right. And they wind up going through with these gleeful grins on their face. I was going to say, survival is not the pass-fail of the, you know, it is, is, is not, the, uh, not the winning condition. Um, the uh, paranoia is the game that kind of like codified that, right? Of like, we're telling you at the beginning of the game, if you die and you're going to die multiple times, you have an infinite number of clones behind you that will just come along and pick up the role and carry on the story after you, yeah, right? Like, so therefore, the... once again, like, you know, like not dying entertainingly is the fail condition of the game, right? Exactly. So, you know. We had a similar thing in this. It takes like five minutes to make a D&D basic character. So mm-hmm. the rule is if you get killed, here's another character sheet. Here's another here's character. Another exactly, right. Okay. Yep. Absolutely game maybe labeling it as goals is not a hundred percent accurate um but there's old rpg uh called it came from the late 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 show mm-hmm. that game? um yep. yeah i i love that game. meta game that i got to play where you could like throw them off the set and hide in your trailer because you don't want to get in this the distinction between the actor and the character in the horror movie was very fuzzy at times Oh yeah, it's a lot of fun. But one of the things they do in that game is that your actor is given uh, certain things to achieve as the character that they're playing. And they're not so much, like I said, labeling of goals is probably a little inaccurate, but it's like, um, like I had one where I was playing the Chara type character and I had to speak gibberish that people still sort of understood. Um, and another one I had to work into, uh, my, my, uh, 
uh, play as often as possible her catchphrase, which was chicky chicky boom boom. And so it was goals, kind of, but it's not about you have to win, you have to object. It's about, you know, working this into play. And that's an idea I've been kind of playing with as far as something to give people sort of a hook. Um, Because it's a reward mechanism. It's not really a pass fail situation so much if it's like, you know, like there's a uh, there's one of the rules, part of the structure along the way is this kind of like meta knowledge of, oh, yes, I have to work. You know, uh, it's like doing a. to top chef or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like you have a set of ingredients that you need to work into the story before, you know, and if you successfully get them all into the story, well, that's the winning condition, right? So, well, I know, like, this is the sort of thing that you can bring back to mm-hmm. pass-fail style board games as well, because if you've, if you've, if you've failed spectacularly and had fun doing it, mm-hmm. then that sets a precedent. You realize, well, okay, right. maybe I can play chess and have a good time with that, even if I'm losing, even sure. though chess seems like this very serious sort of thing. Right. Or right. something like where you can have the you know the, the the awesome shared story of like the tremendous beating that you took playing Pandemic as a group, right? Of like you know mm-hmm. it's like oh we destroyed the entire planet in yeah, two turns. So we, yeah. we were so terrible, yeah. We were so owned by it. So yep. that that's still rewarding. A friend of mine has a has a, a story game RPG um, that is a it's a horror movie. Uh, you know, it's a slasher film uh, uh, genre for this, and uh, you know going in of the players at the table that one of you will be the final girl. We don't know which of you. We're going to determine that in the story. But at the end, the final girl will win, right? Like, she will be the one who, like, you know, gets away. And the rest of us will all die horribly. And we're going to determine that by whoever is the last one standing is, in fact, the final girl and gets a final scene in which they overcome the, you know, the slasher or whatever. Um, you, so once again, that's, you know, that, that kind of, like, uh, uh, funnel mechanic of, uh, you know, everybody else here is going to die. And we all understood that when we started, right? And that's that's just part of the fun. So... Um, and then, you know, we'll have a, a lovely five minute, uh, you know, closure, basically, of a final scene where the one of us who, you know, like by sheer luck was the last one standing gets to, uh, you know, show how they've overcome the terror that like we've all been facing. So it looks like the cross pollinization can indeed work both ways that experience with open ended games where things go terribly can prepare you psychologically for things to go badly in a pass-fail game. In a pass-fail, yes. And losing a whole lot of pass-fail games and also losing a lot of them and getting accustomed to that can make you feel less worried about messing up uh, playing a character in an open-ended game where you're expected to just sort of make your own identity make I think that's story. I think that's absolutely true once again it's one of the things I was I was saying at the beginning I think it's a it's a to a certain extent it's a false dichotomy they are both just elements uh, whether something is pass fail or uh, or open-ended is is not kind of like the core division between games right so mm-hmm. so Beth you have to be in another panel in about 10 minutes do you need to go or can you stick with us for another five minutes of q and I, I can stick with you for another five minutes yes okay right. Mickey, Mickey hit us nice? Wait. Very good. Do you have any, any more questions? questions? Oh, that's the only one that we've okay. got? Okay. Okay. Well, it's. I, I guess that means we've just done our job altogether too well here, folks, which is good. <laughs> All right. We over-explained your problem. <laughs> we did. We've passed. This is a pass-fail situation. We thought it was going to be open-ended, but it turns out, nope, we won. We just won. Killed it. Exactly. But I think it is really good for game designers to not look at it as either or or that why well, only design this and just consider them tools in a toolbox and that they're tools that may interplay. 
Right. The most recent pass-fail game that I made, like I said, is based on uh, We Raid Dogs. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the premise of the Twitter account, it is a uh, the Twitter account. Uh, you send a picture of your dog to Matt Nelson, the guy who actually runs the, the the site, and he says some comedy thing about your dog, and then rates them out of ten. So this is uh, hot or not for dogs? It is, except that part of the premise being that because all dogs are awesome, you can a dog cannot get less than eleven out of ten. That's the minimum score. And then they, you know, that it goes up from there. So the point of our game was that, you know, like the the all, all dogs are awesome. Just some dogs are slightly more awesome than others, right? And so like the 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 entire structure of the game is around, uh, you know, kind of like overloading your character with or your 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 piece, your the dog that you're uh, entering in the competition, um, with superlatives to the point that like you know e- e- even among this collection of like the most awesome winning dogs, you know, like in the world. Uh, your dog somehow was like the super winner, <laughs> right? So it was a it was a pass pass game, but there was like you know different levels of passing basically was, uh, was the, the the version of it. Nobody ever loses. The only way that you can score less than ten out of ten uh, in the game is for another player to secretly reveal that your character is in fact not a dog at all, but a hippo that snuck into the competition. Uh, and that's 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 the sing, that that's a, the, the single uh, you know like losing condition of the game. Otherwise, everybody wins. So. I've uh, I mentioned Fog of Love earlier on. Uh, this is a board game about a relationship between two people. And what I find most bold and fascinating about the design in this game is its approach to victory and loss. Because there are certain things that are going to be true or false by the end of the story. Either your character and your partner's character will be satisfied in the relationship or unsatisfied in the relationship. And either you will break up or you will stay together. Mm-hmm. Um, those are could be thought of as pass-fail states, but none of the at no point in the game, in the rules or anywhere in the components, does it ever mention winning or losing. Right, right. Um, it's 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 a game that has a distinct resolution that comes to a conclusion, in right. which it's up to you to determine who won and who lost. Right. And I find if that anybody did fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very much sort of a um, uh, in, in some ways a possible training ground for coming into games and not necessarily looking to win or lose, but just to experience it. And for understanding the story game, the RPG concept of play to find out, right? So yeah. it's you know. Let's see, nothing else in the in the chat for us, Mickey. No problem. All right. And I think I think I was gonna say let's. Sure. I think we're ready. All right. So um, let's finish by uh, once again um, telling us telling us where we can find you, where you can find your work, what projects you're most interested in, and uh, what you're most looking forward to at this point. Uh, Beth, do you want to uh, take us out? You can find me at Nworld, um, and my handle there is uh, B-R-I-M-M as in Mary, E-L-S as in Sam. Um, you'll find me reviewing um the D releases but i also review indie games and then do other interviews articles and so forth and then you can also find me on twitter i have multiple twitter accounts uh the two that are relevant for here is at beth rimmels r-i-m-m-e-l-s um and then the uh twitter account that is all about games all the time is awesome the number eight followed by the letter s rpg um so you can find me there and uh Anything other stuff maybe coming soon 
I was going to say maybe some stuff coming soon, but not ready to yet to be announced. So. Okay, <laughs> so I have to watch your Twitter feed then to, uh, yes. to kind of catch those. Fair enough. Thank you. Your turn, Darren. Uh, I'm Darren Watts. Uh, I am on uh, Twitter and uh, uh, at uh, DarrenWatts27. Uh, I am Howland Owl on Discord, and uh, I am all over the uh, Double Exposure uh, Discord accounts because I am the uh, panel and seminar track manager for, uh, double, for double Exposure conventions, including this one. Um, and you can find my work in a bunch of different uh, RPGs. I am currently, uh, at long last, finishing an epic uh, project with Greater Than Games for the Sentinels of the Multiverse uh, role-playing game um, that I have every hope at long last is going to come out this spring. Uh, and uh, that prim- oh, uh, oh, uh, right, exactly. And uh, I have a podcast <laughs> about comic book history uh, called uh, Explain This Comics Guys, and that's at explainthis.podbean.com. Nice. Uh, I've been Joan Moriarty. I am uh, a games mistress. I teach games at the Snakes and Lattes in Toronto. I typically work there on Fridays, so if you'd like to come in and try your hand at some uh, some games and discover what does and doesn't work for you, you can find me there. You can find me on... I'm, I'm not supposed to interact with people on Twitter because it's apparently bad for me. My therapist says I'm not supposed to do that, but <laughs> you can still message me there if you need to get hold of me. It's <laughs> J Games Mistress. Um... My main project at this point is the YouTube channel, Joan the Games Mistress. I can, uh, we'll, we'll see if we can put the link in the description to that channel. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, YouTube will try to tell you that Games Mistress is two words. This is a lie. Games Mistress is one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole purpose of that channel is to reach two kinds of people. People who are curious about modern games, but find the idea of playing them a little intimidating, find the space maybe a little unwelcoming. And two, people have been playing and loving these things for years and find that it's often very difficult to bring people from group number one into the fold to be able to have a good time. It's all about providing the tools that you need to use things like the magic circle, the play contract, and all these very, very complicated, jargony sounding things and bringing them down to something that everybody can use to make their time playing games more fun. Excellent and worthy. Thank you both so much for being here with me. Thank you all for watching. Uh, I hope that this has helped provide you with some information that you'll be able to use to make your games more enjoyable and to bring more people in and help them have a better time at play. Take care, everyone. Absolutely.